This is a piece by a guy named Larry Taunton. Larry who? Never heard of her. What sort of a man is he? Pick from Bama. A man like any other, but more so. Well, I thought he was dead. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Let's light this candle. Welcome into the Larry Alex Taunton Show. I, it might surprise you, am Larry Alex Taunton, and I am here today with my good friend, Steve Cortez. Steve, Steve, as I uh, say, is like the Jerry Royster of politics. If you are not, re- if you weren't an Atlanta Braves fan in the 80s or not in the minutia of baseball, you might not know who he was, but Jerry Royster was a utility player who I think I saw play everything but pitcher. And that's Steve Cortez. So to call him a senior Trump you know, advisor, he's that. But Steve <laughs> writes. Um, he does a number of um, you know, uh, uh, podcast interviews, television interviews. He's a guy who is, uh, his, has been with several networks. And it's my pleasure to have you here, Steve. Glad you came. Larry, it is wonderful to be here. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm such an avid listener of your show that it's just it's an honor to be part of it. Well, it's an honor to me that you listen, and uh, it's just a pleasure for us to have you. I'm sorry that Amy Beth couldn't be here today. Um, I'm sure that she will regret it. And we're going to do such a great job today that we're going to make her regret it. That's right. Exactly. We're going to make her wish she was here. That's right. So, you know, we need to have cookies and things of that nature to really make her wish that she was here. Steve, um, (laughs) there's so many things that I want to ask you about. And, you know, our conversation over lunch, I just... You know, I feel like a mosquito in a on a nude beach. I just don't know where to begin. <laughs> but you were a guy that had a very successful career on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. You know, in a sense, you're made. You're uh, you know middle aged. You're a guy who's you know his career is set, and then you decided to leave that. You know, mm-hmm. what would what would motivate you to do that? So uh, interesting story, and I, I would say the, the quick answer is vocation. I think it was a calling, and uh, I, I hope and believe it was a calling from God. But the more sort of practical answer about how that happened, uh, I, I enjoyed my Wall Street career. I did, um, and it was it was fascinating. It took me all over the world. Uh, I grew up as a very middle class kid, and so for me to get into the arena of high finance was a great accomplishment, a great mm-hmm. thrill, quite frankly, for me. Uh, I feel privileged that it happened. It happened mainly because I was good enough at football to get me into Georgetown, get into Georgetown got me onto Wall Street. You, know, you may be the only guy I will ever meet who went to Georgetown on a football school. Right. Not exactly noticed. <laughs> not Bama. Not a football school, but uh, but I had an absolute blast playing there. We had the, we had the smallest stadium in Division One. It's okay. like getting a it's like getting a you know a chess scholarship to go to Auburn. You know, yeah. you're just oh, like, all right, come really? on. Now you're mocking me a little. <laughs> mocking me a little bit. What but, position uh, did you play? Uh, D tackle. Okay. My whole life, D tackle. Never touched. So I played football from the time I was a kid all the way through college. I never once had possession of the ball. Think of that. Not a I mean, single time. Not one time. I mean, so in, you know, whatever it was, 12 years of football, think of playing a game and you never had possession of the ball in that game. Wow. It's kind of funny, isn't it? It is. You know, and, and, and it not explains a fumble recovery, why, not a, you know. It explains why when those guys get the chance to score, right. that it, they're keeping that ball right. and they're celebrating oh, that I always moment. said if I ever scored a touchdown, which again, I never had possession, <laughs> so it wasn't even a, a thought, but if I ever scored a touchdown, I think I would just leave the field and be done, right? Like just <laughs> retire at that moment. But, uh, but getting back to football got me to Georgetown. Georgetown got me to Wall Street. Had a reasonable amount of success uh, on Wall Street. But here's 
the thing on Wall Street. Uh, number one, I was basically helping successful people and successful institutions get more successful. And there's nothing wrong with that, okay? But helping hedge fund guys who are already wealthy get more wealthy. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, nothing wrong with it, nothing immoral, nothing unethical. But I didn't feel it was a calling. Gotcha. I, I didn't. Um, <clears throat> and at the same time, I was always very politically active just on the side. Not ever as a, as a job, but as a donor, reading a lot. And I would characterize myself as basically a Wall Street Republican. I was somewhat of an establishment Republican, believed in things like, quote, free trade. And I'm using the, the quotation marks with my fingers because— Is that rare or common? No, very common, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, very common. But my eyes were opened by an orange man who came down the escalator in 2015— uh, and he really did open my eyes, for example, regarding free trade, that we never did have free trade. It was always managed and mostly managed against the interests of American workers and for the interests of the ruling class in the United States, as well as places like Brussels and Paris and Davos. And China. Um, and China, more so than any, maybe anywhere else, absolutely. And uh, and it was really it, sort of, for me, a almost political you know, Damascus Road experience. I mean, really, he made me question everything I thought I believed. Yeah. Um, and it, was, it got me uh, to do a lot of introspection. Uh, and in the meantime, by the way, I guess I should back up a moment. In my in my Wall Street career, I had become a TV personality while doing my Wall Street job, was a regular on CNBC, worked for them actually for eight years. So that's where I learned the craft of television, but not to talk politics, to talk tickers and financial markets and currencies and bonds. Um, so, but I was known as a TV you know, entity, a TV talent at the same time that I was a Wall Street professional. With this orange guy comes down the escalator changes my mind or opens my mind, at least to consider changing my mind on a whole lot of subjects. Uh, it wasn't just that I had a policy shift. I also had a personal shift. And that's why I say I believe it was a vocation because what he really opened my eyes to also was the fact that the system we had created in the United States was incredibly lucrative and incredibly wonderful, frankly, for the ruling class. Yeah. But we were crushing middle-class people. Mm -hmm. And we've been doing it for decades, by the way. Which, by the way, I love about, I'm going to call them chalk talks, mm -hmm. your, uh, your talks that I see on Twitter. I love the fact that you are, you're really addressing issues that relate to the common man, not just the right. elites, sure. you know, the housing market and so on. But anyway, continue. The elites will take care of themselves. Yes. <laughs> they don't need any advocacy, yes. right? They've got yeah. plenty of advocates that they pay very well, right? Uh, and, and Donald Trump... And I'll admit, it's, it's a paradox, right, that this billionaire who lived in a gilded palace above Fifth Avenue became the voice for the elites and became their advocate, or excuse me, for the, for the forgotten, for man. the working man, uh, and in, in so many ways. And he was. And I came to the realization that with my platform, with my television skills, with my understanding of policy, my understanding of Wall Street, my understanding of economics, uh, that I could join him effectively in that fight. And then I literally joined him. He, uh, I started saying things at the time I was working for Fox News. I, I jumped from CNBC to Fox News. And again, my primary role was to talk markets. But I started saying positive things about then-candidate Donald Trump. Uh, much to the chagrin of most of my uh, colleagues at Fox News at that time, much to the chagrin of a lot of people in my life. Let's repeat that, at Fox News. At Fox News, News yes. yes. But this is, you know, early 2016. Yeah. And uh, that my sort of conversion with him was late 2015, early 2016, yeah. before the primaries had started. And um, Donald Trump got a hold of me and said, I uh, didn't know him. I wasn't looking for a political career. And said, uh, you say great things about me. You're wonderful at television. I need you on the team. And... Mm -hmm. Much to my wife's chagrin, I left a pretty good paying gig uh, to do a volunteer gig with Donald Trump. But again, I thought it was a vocation. I thought this is the fight of a lifetime. I have an opportunity of a lifetime that I will never have. I didn't have to come up through the ranks, so to speak, politically. My TV skills had allowed me to sort of parachute in at a certain senior level to be part of this fight. And for all of 2016, 
we fought like crazy, and lo and behold, we won. Well, I have. See, I'm that mosquito at the uh, <laughs> at the at the nudist beach. I have so many questions. You can dismiss anything that I say, but I'm curious because you are talking about it as a vocation. You're a man of faith. Yes. You're you're, and I'm a man of faith. Is Donald Trump a Christian? Yes. Yes. Unpack that a bit because that's an issue that's raised yeah. quite a lot. And there are, you know, there are many people. Let's think of somebody like, say, a David French, mm -hmm. you know, who wants to say that he absolutely is not a Christian. I mean, they're they're not they're yeah. not uh, uh, mincing words. You're somebody who knows him. So yes. so tell me a little bit about that. I will that. say this. Uh, when the cameras are off and when I speak to President Trump, he cares very deeply about the issues that are important to Christianity. Now, does he comport himself in the public eye in a way that we would uh, associate with piety? No, yeah. not at all. Yeah. Right? Quite the opposite. Uh, but his job is not to be a pastor, right? Yeah. He's not a minister. His job is to be a politician, to be a guardian of Christians and all faiths, for that matter. But, so it's like Constantine. Yes. And in that role, by the way, I don't think anyone has done more for American Christians in decades at least. Oh, and, and worldly. See, th this is globally um, because this is what I'm talking about. We Off camera, we were talking about, you know, um, you know, some of my world travels. I discovered this was fascinating, Steve. When I was going around the world, and I was I was writing the you know the book around the world in more than eighty days. Please buy it in bulk. Um, <laughs> that the the domestic narrative on Trump. Uh, this was after he became president. Did not match the global narrative among common people. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, I'm in a I'm in a taxi in London. Mm -hmm. Trump comes up. I'm bracing, you know, um, for you know, uh, all kinds of anger and, you know, somebody spew venom. And uh, that's not what you got. Mm -hmm. You discovered that the common people, and then in Africa, um, the Nigerians, um, you know, which is a Christian country, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's increasingly not a Christian country, right. but it is, it's not an Islamic state. And these are people who love Trump. And you know why they loved him? Because e even, even just what you say, the, the rhetoric matters. Mm -hmm. And they were sick and tired of George W. Bush, of um, Barack Obama, mm -hmm. um, of so many different American politicians, Western politicians, saying Islam is a, is a religion of peace. And I was getting that question a ton. Right. And when, you know, why do, you, why do your politicians say this? And they loved that Trump didn't. And not only that, but that he sent them weapons to defend themselves. Right. So I, I try to help people understand... Who we elect as president doesn't just simply affect your 401k. Sure. There's a ripple effect globally. You know, Larry, I really believe that between Reagan and Trump, you had a series of politicians, not just presidents, but at every level, basically, in, in, in American national political life. You had a series of politicians of both parties who were engaged in a, in, in a managed decline, in managing the decline of America. That's, particularly, a, that's an interesting way to put it. Particularly for the middle class, right? Yeah. Particularly for them. It was a managed decline. And the managed decline of the United States wasn't just bad for Americans. It was bad for the world. They're bad for the world. It, for example, yep. it facilitated, you mentioned China, it facilitated the rise of the Chinese Communist Party. And I'm, I try to be very careful, by the way, when I criticize China, to not say China, but say the Chinese Communist Party, yeah. even though it's a mouthful, because the Chinese people, of course, are the foremost victims, the yes. first and foremost victims of the CCP. Um, but for example, to be specific here, in 2001, when China was welcomed into the World Trade Organization on the most generous terms possible to the regime in Beijing, uh, welcomed with open arms by a bipartisan consensus in the United States by Bill Clinton, by George W. Bush, by Joe Biden, who was then senator, who was maybe 
the foremost advocate on Capitol Hill at that time in advocating for China to be welcomed in on terms, again, that were totally detrimental to American workers, totally unfair, not in any way reciprocal, brutal for the Chinese people, wonderful for the CCP, wonderful for American multinationals. Okay, that is the very definition, in my view, of a managed decline. And who paid the price? In our country, working class Americans, right? As we saw our jobs offshored to the CCP, which manipulated its own populace through either actual slave labor or quasi-slave labor. Mm -hmm. And it did grow GDP. This is getting back to, for me personally, what I also realized, what was, it was an awakening for me in terms of policy, was that growing GDP is one thing. And by the way, trading with China did grow GDP, Okay, but a country is not a company. We should not only be focused on how much can we grow the top line. It should also be how broad is the prosperity yeah, exactly. right, in the United States. And it wasn't broad at all. As a matter of fact, it was, it was narrowing and narrowing. And I felt and believed that this America First movement of that combined cultural conservatism, and the cultural issues are hugely important to me as well, not just economic, but cultural conservatism with economic populist nationalism, that that was the recipe to save America. And I still believe that. And I think we were a long way towards saving America until the CCP unleashed an epidemiological Pearl Harbor on our country. Um, you're saying, uh, you're, you're talking about you know this, this extraordinary phenomenon of, uh, of Donald Trump, uh, all that he is and, and all that he brought with him in the machine that is Donald Trump. I mean, he's a brand sure. without, without a doubt. But how is it that a guy like that becomes a champion for the common man. I mean, right. given his background, yeah. what 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 motivated that on on his part? Do you have any uh, insight? I do. Into that? I, I think so, and I think with him specifically, and I've talked with him a bit about this, and certainly read about it. Uh, it really is his father, and so you know, remember he created you know luxury properties primarily all over the world. Donald Trump did. His father was in a very different part of real estate, right? It was low-income or middle-income housing, uh, not in Manhattan, right, in the other boroughs of Manhattan. So Donald Trump largely grew up while he was while his father was very successful and he was a you know a child of wealth. Number one, they didn't really live that way; they lived yeah. pretty simply. But number two, he grew up around construction sites. Uh, he grew up collecting rent. Uh, so he's I think it's one of the reasons that he's very comfortable, incredibly comfortable around working class people. Yeah, and because he's comfortable around them. He's one of these rare celebrities, which is what he was before he became president, one of these rare celebrities who can interact with them and understand them. And he was able to put his finger on the pulse of the anxiety that existed uh, among among Americans and understandable anxiety, right? Uh, unfortunately, I think that anxiety has gotten even worse now yeah, because of what's, of what's happening. But you know, here's the other thing too, though, because I, I don't want to make it all Trump-centric, okay, as much as I admire Donald Trump. This movement of, of populist nationalism existed before Trump, yeah. and it will extend far beyond Trump. And as you said, it's global. It's not yeah. even just an American phenomenon. Um, and well, the whole Brexit crowd. Correct. Yeah. And the, the, the ruling class globally, the New York, London, uh, Beijing, Davos crowd, has created a globalist system that works, again, very, very well for the credentialed elites to yeah. the detriment of working class people globally. Now, my because I'm an American nationalist, my concern is American working class people, but clearly this is a global phenomenon. Trump came along to this pre-existing movement, and he became an incredibly useful instrument and, and leader of that movement. But he didn't create it, you know, and I, helped, I think the first to acknowledge that. He didn't create it. 
Uh, but he brought it to prominence and he brought it to political prominence in this country. I, I would submit this to you, for example, one of the things that Trump has done that the movement has done is regarding China, completely reoriented the way that we approach China from a policy perspective, uh, the way we think and talk about China. For example, now Democrat politicians who are running for office in this upcoming election, they are competing to show who could be tougher on China. Hmm. That never happened yeah. before 2016. Um, you he, know, you, he shifted the paradigm. It's uh, well, I, you know, he really uh, sounded the alarm, didn't he, mm -hmm. of what was going on? Uh, I, a, a, a friend of mine was telling me that uh, someone he knows in the uh, the FBI was telling him that prior to Trump, he said the Chinese were stealing us blind, and uh, he he was telling a story about something at I think at Caltech, some type of technology in some laboratory at Caltech. That was that was very important for national security. That this agent said, I mean, we arrested him. He's literally ripping it off the wall. I mean, it's bolted to the wall, and uh, he says, you know, just all kinds of technology was going out the back door. Nobody really seemed to care. And he said, and Trump came in and put a stop to all that because he was the one who said, look, do you understand what's happening? Mm -hmm. I mean, even right down to TikTok. I mean. Mm -hmm. He expressed grave concern even over a social media platform. So he was he was aware of what was going on with that sort of thing. Now we've moved, of course, in the exact opposite direction. But you used two words in this uh, podcast already that intrigue me and that I want you to unpack because you use them unashamedly. And the first is populism, mm -hmm. and the second is nationalism. Mm -hmm. So let's let's unpack that a bit because the left uses both to mean essentially fascist. Sure. I mean, if you're a populist, you're a fascist. Right. If you are a nationalist, a Christian nationalist, you're a fascist. Right. So what is your response to that? Uh, yeah, my response is, first of all, I, I uh, wear their scorn as a badge of honor, all right? First <laughs> yeah. of all, it's important in life uh, to have the right allies. It's also important to have the right opponents, yes. okay? And so if the MSNBC crowd is coming after me, if big corporate executives are coming after me for that sort of a phrase or other people who use those phrases, you know, so be it, welcome it. But no, it, but to be, you know, sort of serious and, and to give definitions that I think make sense. Uh, populism means that I recognize that the will of the people has largely been thwarted. I don't believe that America right now really really operates as a republic. Now, I don't think we are completely lost, but I think it is largely an oligarchy. And yeah. I think that's really indisputable if you look at how our society really functions. Now, I don't think it's too late to save the republic, okay? Uh, for example, we're having this podcast. If it were too late, we wouldn't have this podcast, yeah. right? I mean, it would be, or at least it wouldn't get out to anyone. Yeah. So, I mean, there are there are there is still enough sort of muscle memory of the republic that it's very savable, although I think the clock is ticking and the hour is late. So when I talk about populism, what I really mean, I guess, most of all is the, the force that is revolting against the oligarchs. That's gotcha. what I mean more than anything else. The common people. Yes. The now, will of the common people. Now, nationalism is probably more problematic for a lot of people, right? Yeah. People are probably more willing generally to accept me saying I'm a populist, but nationalism is automatically equated with Nazism. Yeah. Um, I don't think it should be, and I hope that over time we can change that connotation. Of course, what I mean by nationalism has nothing to do yeah. quite the opposite of that. I believe that the, the world acts best when each country pursues its self-interest in an enlightened fashion. Mm -hmm. That is when the world acts best. And the world from a Christian point of view, and as I believe in Christian, I absolutely believe in nations. Nations were ordained by God. The word nations is used again and again, countless times in scripture, right? We are a world of nations and we are supposed to be. Uh, and a world of nations means governments, boundaries, borders that actually matter, that actually mean something. So from a foundational Christian perspective, philosophical perspective, I believe that, but also just from a practical perspective. Yeah. You 
you know, again, that the world does not work well when we uh, when when we outsource our authority and our sovereignty to multinational organizations that supposedly will look out for the will of the people of those respective nations, when in fact it will only look after its own institutional power. Yeah, exactly, you know? and that's that's what led uh, the common people this populist, you know, uprising in Britain um, for Brexit because you you have people who are like. Um, you know, uh, fishermen and farmers who were sick and tired of Brussels telling them what they could and couldn't do on their own land. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, we're seeing, you know, a push in that direction in this country in a, in a, in a very big way. But I couldn't agree with you um, uh, more. And here's an interesting thing, too. I discover, you know, my own world travel, Steve, that I like people and respect those people that I've encountered in roughly 60 countries who love their own country. Sure. I, I think to myself, you know, in, for instance, as I wrote in uh, my book, Around the World in More Than 80 Days, please, please buy it in book. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I titled the chapter on Japan, Japan, Good for the Japanese, mm -hmm. meaning that as a, as a tourist, you feel a little out of place. Sure. They're not really seeking to accommodate you a whole mm -hmm. lot. It is a monoculture. I mean, it's, it's one of the least ethnically diverse countries on the planet. I mean, I think... North of 98.5% right. of the people are ethnically Japanese. Mm -hmm. And the Japanese like it that way. They like their own rules. They like their own culture. And they don't feel the need. Um, now, the younger generation uh, may be different, but they don't feel the need to adopt values that are not their own. Mm -hmm. And I respect them for that because the Chinese, uh, excuse me, the uh, the Japanese don't have to accommodate me. You right. know, right. So would... Would it be difficult for me to live there? Yes. Would I be able to break in and learn the language? Probably not. But that's not their fault. They love their country. Mm -hmm. And I respect people who, I mean, the uh, the recent election of a new president in, uh, in Italy, mm -hmm. um, suddenly I've forgotten her name. Uh, Maloney. Yes, mm -hmm. Maloney. She's, Which sounds like an Irish name until you see the spelling. It right. does. <laughs> and she is, uh, she's just... She's just fabulous. Yes. And she states very frankly that she is proud to be a woman. Yes. She's proud of their uh, their Catholic faith. And she is proud to be an Italian. Right. And there's a part of me that goes, you know, yes, yes. good for you. No. I, I, I mean, I as an American cheer that. Right. Because it's so rare these days. Yes. But that's what you're talking about. Right. Yeah. And, and she does say that so proudly. And you're yeah. exactly right. I, I, too, wanted to cheer, even though I'm an American yes. nationalist, obviously not an Italian nationalist. But good for her to say, I am so proud to be an Italian. I am so privileged to be a mother. Yeah. Uh, I am so honored and blessed to be a Christian. Right? And this to is what you're Catholic. talking about. Would you, would you categorize her as a, as a Christian nationalist, as a populist? Uh, yes, 100%. I would love to have her as the face of it. She's, yes. a, she's a, uh, a, a, a really, you know, she's kind of a, an Italian Carrie Lake. Yes. <laughs> Yes. And, I mean, she is no holds barred, right. and yet she's so gracious in uh, in the way that she manages. Here's, here's my point, too, is that it's not even just that I believe it's right and that I believe we have evidence-based reasons to be proud, right? It's not just jingoism that yeah. I'm proud of the United States, for example. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think for evidence-based reasons of history and culture uh, that this country was founded by amazing men who yeah, created an unbelievable document that has led to incredible success that we should be proud of. Doesn't mean we should be arrogant, but that we should be incredibly proud of. Like there are reasons also to back up our nationalism. But even outside of that, from a practical standpoint, you know, again, I submit that the world functions best when each country is pursuing its enlightened self-interest. And let me give you a specific example. Right now in Ukraine, what is going on is multinational organizations, particularly NATO, 
in my view, is escalating what should be a regional struggle between Russia and Ukraine, two countries that have hated each other since time for, immemorial. For millennia. Yeah, yep. uh, who are engaged in a border that has been moving for yeah. a very long time uh, over the, the Russian-speaking eastern provinces of Ukraine. Very complex issues. Uh, no doubt Putin absolutely, totally unjust in his invasion of a sovereign country. However, a regional struggle, which in my view should stay regional, Right? And if the United States has any role, it should be to encourage de-escalation and negotiation. I have no doubt, by the way, getting back to Donald Trump, if we put Trump in a room with the Ukrainians and the Russians uh, I, and we weren't escalating the situation, I think within a day we would have some sort of resolution. Well, in, uh, in Trump, of course, you know, one of the reasons they've sought to attack him for sure is he knew that there was some kind of shenanigans going on in uh, in Ukraine? Is it money laundering? Is it laboratories making bioweapons? Yeah, do you have an opinion on on that? Yeah, you know, that part I don't know. But but what I what I do know is that it, to get to this point of nationalism versus multilateralism, yeah. it is NATO, right, that is most driving this escalation there. And why? Well, because it, it suits the institutional power of yeah. NATO, uh, you know, a, an organization which many people, and I happen to be sympathetic to this view, probably shouldn't exist anymore. Yeah. Cold War is over. But it, it cements and augments its institutional power. And the related constituencies, for example, defense contractors in all of these respective countries, but particularly Who in the United big States, big contributions, yeah, benefit massively from this escalation. And by the way, too, just to show the duplicity of those kinds of organizations, right, NATO. NATO is literally, by its member states, funding both sides of that struggle. So the American taxpayer right now is sending tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine, money that we do not have, that we are borrowing, sending interest rates even higher, already a problem in the United States, exacerbating that problem domestically to send money to Ukraine to massively escalate that struggle at the same time that NATO members are sending tens of billions of dollars to Russia yeah. because they're purchasing energy from Russia. I mean, in what world does it make sense to fund both sides of a conflict? We will take a break right there. Normally, Amy Beth does this, and she just <laughs> does it so smoothly in and yes. out. But we're going to take a break. Uh, right now, we are talking with Steve Cortez. He is a former uh, senior senior Trump advisor, but will be again with the next administration. <laughs> so we'll be back. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more on this issue of faith. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Larry is my favorite player. Welcome back to the Larry Alex Taunton Show. And I am sitting here with my friend Steve Cortez, uh, senior Trump advisor, and uh, as I say, the Jerry Royster of politics, just a, <laughs> a utility it. a utility player, a guy that you can slot him, you know, anywhere. I want to come back to the issue of faith for mm -hmm. for just a moment uh, because I know that there are a lot of people who are watching us or listening, um, who are you know, have bought to some extent into the media narrative about nationalism, about populism. And then you have the term Christian nationalism, mm -hmm. which the left is equating to, you know, Nazism, just sure. as just as you've pointed out. What do you say to those people to, to help them relax on an issue like this? Because see, what I think the left, you know, does with their, their steady drip of propaganda on an issue like this is to make you terrified sure. to use the words that right. you've used. Right. And to associate yourself with that given thing because they create a narrative that it's toxic. Now, I don't believe that and you don't believe that. Right. 
So what do you say to people like that? How do they manage that? How do they navigate, you know, when they're seeing all this in media and they're, you know, talking with their neighbor over the backyard fence sure. when these issues come up? Well, the first thing I would say as, as an American, right, speaking as an American Christian, is to say that, uh, to, to proudly say that you're an American Christian. And by the way, not that you're prideful that Christ has, has bestowed his grace upon you, right, but, but that you're proud to be an American Christian is actually the height of tolerance. And so the yeah. left wants us to believe that it's intolerant. Yeah. No, it, it is Americans' Christianity, our, our Judeo-Christian tradition, which is the actual definition of tolerance, right? Yeah. That, for example, we want to evangelize, we want to persuade everyone to believe what we believe, right, in the risen Christ. However, we force it upon no one. Exactly. And, we, and, we, and we tolerate any manner of religious belief, even the ones that we deem to be, frankly, silly or bizarre, right? That is because of Christianity. Uh, that is a that is a Christian ideal, and then I would also say for for Christians wherever they are, whether they're American or anywhere in the world, uh, and I think for this matter for Jews as well, it would be the same because we have the same Bible, you know. And I mentioned this earlier. If we if we look at the Bible, the Bible speaks on and on about nations, right? Principally the nation of Israel, of course, yeah. in the Old Testament, but but nations broadly, you know, the Great Commission, go and make uh, disciples of all the nations, right? So nations are ordained by God. Governments are ordained by God. So we know that the, that nation, the, the nation construct is in and of itself good, and, and it is correct, and it is, it is divinely inspired and ordained. And if that is so, then it's it's proper for us to be proud of our nation, yeah, right? exactly, and, and to seek the betterment of our nation and to seek to assert the interests of our nation. Now, that doesn't mean subjugating any other nation, no more than it means subjugating other people in our interpersonal lives, right? Um, but I I also think just as a practical matter, as a, as a you know person who's engaged in messaging for a living, don't be afraid of the words populist nationalist. I'm a populist nationalist. No, I think we need to embrace them. I'm, I'm with you on that. And as as you know, um, as an avid listener to our podcast and a guy who never fails to miss a single episode, but um, you will know that I've, I've been doing a fair amount of research on and talking about the World Economic Forum yeah. and their agenda. And of course, part of their agenda is the annihilation of national sovereignty. Right. And the way to do that is with this, you know, is for it to crumble on the ass under the acids of cynicism. Right. That's what they want to do. And uh, so they have media working with them and and uh, various politicians who are working with them because this is what they want. And it's not in the best interests of uh, the common man anywhere. Right. It's uh it it just simply uh isn't the case. You know, I think of it like this, Steve. See if you think my analogy works for you. But I think of it just like any house in a neighborhood. You know, your the that neighborhood functions best to kind of loosely quote you. If Steve Cortez is focused on his wife and his children and providing for them and seeing to their care and for the instruction of his children and making sure that not just any any Yahoo comes through the front door mm. uh, into his home and he's defending them and he's He's seen to the well-being rather than worrying about what's going on down the street. Mm -hmm. Does that work for you? Oh, hundred percent. You know, and the analogy I use too when it comes to borders is, you know, we lock our in our personal lives. We lock our doors at night not because we hate those on the outside, but because we love those on the inside, right? And I think that works for a home. I love the way you put it. And it works for a nation. It looks works for our national home. And and we have to view it as our home, though. People on the left view that as simplistic, right? And they would mock that, actually, right? You know, know what I'm the, thinking right now, don't you? Hmm. Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. Oh, of course. Right? Of course. <laughs> Couldn't handle a few dozen migrants. Had the military yes. escort those migrants off the island. Yes. Could, weren't going to have them. Yeah. Absolutely weren't going to have any brown skin 
abandoned, um, right. you know, uh, immigrants in their neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, you know, and what's also ironic about that, and pardon me for interrupting no. you, Steve, but, you know, it is, it is Christians who are by and large on the right, uh, at least the informed ones, um, are, are on the right, the ones that believe the Bible, that are doing the real work of helping real people, be right. it be it in our own country, be it a, um, abroad, be it in the third world. And it's interesting to me to watch how the left, you know, I, I, I quoted this in probably a couple of other podcasts, but I'll keep quoting it. You know, uh, Fedor Dostoevsky, who uh, in The Brothers Karamazov, one of his characters says, the more I love, the more I love man, um, in general, the more the the less I love him in particular, right. and it is the way they are. I mean, they love the concept of the poor. Sure, they love the idea of the poor. They love the idea of the migrant. They just don't want to see them or rub elbows with right. them at all. And they don't want them at their club. They don't want them in in, in their neighborhoods. Right, and uh, you know. As I recall, Barack Obama has a house in Martha's Vineyard right. that I think has 10 bedrooms. Right. He could have accommodated all 50 of those people. Right. And to that point, I believe one of the reasons that the ruling class uh, feels emboldened to make decisions that are so destructive to working class people is because they are so insulated from the consequences exactly. of those decisions. And to be specific about that regarding migration, for example. Uh, They're not on the border. Large CEOs, yeah, first of all, don't live on the border. Generally a pretty gritty, hard scrabble, working class area for, for one thing. But uh, a, a large CEO welcomes an influx of cheap labor, right, into the United States because it increases the profit margins of massive corporations, right? Uh, and he doesn't have to deal with the consequences because he likely lives in a gated community, belongs to a fancy club, perhaps even has his own security, right? Lives a life that is ensconced. He is separated from the consequences of that. He's absolutely but insulated it right, from his but own But let's decisions. contrast that to a Hispanic working class American who happens to live near the border, right? And by the way, Donald Trump from 2016 to 2020 made gains among Hispanics in the border region of the US and Mexico that were absolutely historic. I mean, literally blew the doors off. And it's because off. they don't want that either. We had right. on the podcast, uh, I don't know, maybe a couple of weeks ago, we had an African immigrant, legal immigrant mm -hmm. into this country who is, he's a Trump voter and he is absolutely opposed to open borders. Right. Obviously isn't opposed to immigration because he himself is an immigrant, but mm -hmm. this is a guy who's saying we don't just let any anybody you know into our house. Right. We just simply can't do that. My own father came here from Colombia, so I'm an immigrant son. And uh, he died many years ago, but he, uh, and so you know, I can't ask him now about his opinion on this, but he wasn't very political. But one of the only political opinions that I remember him expressing to me was his absolute revulsion toward the idea of illegal immigration. Yeah. Because he knew, as every legal immigrant knows, how difficult it is to come to this country, how time-consuming, um, uh, how all-consuming, and how expensive it is to come to the United States. So he came here on a student visa, fell in love with the United States, fell in love with my mother. Uh, student visa ran out. This is way back in the 1950s. Uh, for whatever reason, did not get an extension. Applied, didn't get it. Went back to Columbia. The moment he was legal, reapplied. The moment he was legal, came back, uh, spent the rest of his life, married my mother, raised six kids in the United States, became an American citizen. But I remember asking him once, did you consider just staying? Just staying is illegal. He said, I would never do that. I would never no. do that to this country. And it is it is first and foremost, the, the, the chaotic open border situation that we have at our, at our southern border right now because of Joe Biden, this created crisis. It's terrible for all Americans, but Larry, it is most disrespectful, in my view, to the legal immigrants yeah. who have come here and done it the right way. Yeah, that's that's fascinating because um, the the uh, legal immigrants that I've met in this country fall into the category of your father. They they share that that opinion, and just like the African immigrant that we had on this show, let's move to uh, let's move to the coming midterms. Mm -hmm. 
let's go over there. You're um, you're our strategist. You're sitting looking at the chessboard right now. Um, give us your your uh, evaluation of where things stand and what you think is going to happen. Sure. So listen, I and I'm not by nature sort of Pollyanna, always saying, oh, everything's going to be fine. No, if anything, I, I tend to be, and I think it's my Wall Street background. No, nobody can be engaged in politics and be a Pollyanna. Yeah, so if anything, I think I'm a bit cynical by nature. <laughs> all right, so I'm not one to just gush and say, oh, we're going to win them all. Larry, we're going to win them all. <laughs> okay, and I, I mean win all of them. All of the close races, a few races that we don't even think are close are going to break our way. I think absolute tidal wave. But see, I thought, that, wave. I thought that in the last election, and all of a sudden the voting stopped around well, whatever it was, yeah. 8 p.m. or and something. Obviously, and, we could do several shows on, the, on you know, those no, problems. But, but, but yeah, but I, I, I'm not wanting to go into 2,000 mules and all that. But but I do want to to say to you, do you feel like election rigging is going to play a role in this election, or do you think that do you think that Republicans, conservatives, are finally waking up right. to this and paying attention to what's going on? I mean, I've heard, for instance, in Georgia that they're breaking records with absentee ballots right, right now, and, and that to me says shenanigans. Yeah. How no, do you react to that? Sure. And no, listen, and, and on this score, I, I'm not Pollyanna, believe me. Yeah. Are there going to be problems? Yes, absolutely. In a state like Georgia, for example, where we have a Republican governor, Republican House and Senate, their election reform was so milk toast as to almost be meaningless, right? So, yeah. you know, they still are allowing drop boxes. They're still allowing no excuse absentee uh, balloting. It's it's ridiculous. Okay. So are there going to be problems? Yes. However, here's my my suggestion to you is that we are so hyper aware now, as we should be, because of what happened in 2020. And there are going to be so many eyes on the process that while the process is still very imperfect, it will be workable enough to get us accurate results. And I guess I would also say this to people. If, if there are people out there, which I understand, who are skeptical and say, ah, Cortez, you know, you're full of it. It's not gonna, it's not gonna happen. My vote won't count. What's your alternative? Stay home. Yeah. All right. We know your vote doesn't count if you don't vote. All right. One hundred percent certainty. So it's sort of like Pascal's wager. Like you might as well vote because it might count. And but but not to be flippant about it. I really do believe. And, and let me give you some 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 evidence that I of why I think it's going to happen in the off year election, the odd year election of twenty twenty one. The two biggest states are New Jersey and Virginia. Both of them very blue states. Uh, the Republicans swept every state office in Virginia. It wasn't just Governor Glenn Youngkin. It was the entire slate. Lieutenant Governor, Secretary of State, Attorney General, a very conservative America first slate won in a very blue state that Biden won by eight. Why? How did that happen? I mean, number one, I think they had the right policies and great candidates. But I think as importantly, maybe more importantly, the, the eyes on the process, the percentage of volunteer election day positions in the Commonwealth of Virginia uh, four years earlier, which for them would have been 2017, odd year elections, the percentage field was 35%. In 2021, it was 95%. Wow. And that's largely because of the populist move, uh, uprising out there and the populist movement to get people activated, to get eyes on the process, to get people running for office themselves, volunteering to serve as election judges, precinct captains. So I think we are going to have so many eyes on the process all over over the country that it's a, it's a terribly imperfect system that we need to fix for 2024. But in my view, Larry, it's good enough for 2022. And regarding the issues, and you know, again, this is why I believe it's not going to be just you know a bit of a wave. This is why I think it's a tidal wave that is coming. When we look at the issue set, when we look at what Joe Biden and the Democrats have done to this country in just over a year and a half, it's almost hard to fathom yeah. when you consider where we were versus where we are now. And to me, the three issues, I believe it's it's the three eyes. For a long time, I was saying the two eyes, but I've added a third now because of the, what the CDC did. So it is inflation, immigration, 
and injections, and I mean injections for children, which may very well be compelled for children in this country. I think on those macro issues of inflation, immigration, and injections, the Democrats are so far from where common sense Americans are. They have created so much damage and so much pain, particularly economically, for Americans already. And added to that issue set, I think we've got some really dynamic candidates. You mentioned Carrie yeah. Lake. There are just a lot of stars out there, outsiders, people who have never run for office before. She's certainly one of them. Also another one in Arizona, Blake Masters, who I think is fantastic and is going to win. J.D. Vance in Ohio, uh, John Gibbs in Michigan, Joe Kent in the state of Washington. There are candidates all over this country, many of them outsiders, many of them very young, who are fighters, who are going to go to Washington, D.C. and not join the Uniparty with an R after their name, who are going to act as true populist nationalists uh, and not be afraid. To, to welcome that phrase, you know, or that accusation, uh, as it were, and change this country. So I'm incredibly optimistic. You know, nobody can rest, okay? Everyone needs to vote. Again, eyes on the process everywhere. Anything you see that is untoward has to be documented as much as you can and reported. But uh, I am optimistic in a way that I haven't been electorally ever before. Well, you kind of anticipate my next question, which was, so let's just say, uh, let's, let's be kind of sort of Pollyanna for a moment. And this wave, you know, happens. Uh, you feel like there will be genuine change. I do. Um, with uh, with the election of a new Senate, do, do you think we take both the Senate I and do. the House? I do. So, do you think there will be genuine change? So, you don't think they'll they'll now become basically, you know, what so many of um, these Republicans have become? You know, sure. a, a guy like. Uh, Ben Sass, you know, for instance, right. who's been a, I, I was so excited about him because I thought, wow, this, this guy is the embodiment of so many things that I respect. He's educated, he's thoughtful, he's, and, and he's just been nothing. Oh. And then the Mitch McConnell's of All the world. All puffery, of, no substance. Yes. And you it's, know, uh, yeah, or here, I don't believe this is going to be a Ben Sass or a Paul Ryan Congress. Uh, and it's because, some, for instance, some of those people I just mentioned, this crop of outsiders, and here's the thing too, particularly the Senate. So the Senate has been more problematic for us, uh, for those of us in the America First movement, meaning that there are more establishment Republicans, mm -hmm. right, who simply don't hold the line. For example, this inflationary mess, this absolute crisis that we're enduring, we wouldn't be enduring it because you need 60 senators to pass that spending. Yeah. If we just had Republicans of guts and substance, Biden's exorbitant borrowing and spending could not have happened without the complicity of establishment Republicans. So the Senate has been our primary problem. I think it is going to completely flip to be our primary advantage and our primary political weapon in Washington, D.C. because of the way the Senate works. You don't need 51 fabulous populist national senators. Obviously, we would love that, but you don't need 51. You need five or 10 who are highly organized because of the way the Senate operates and mm -hmm. because of Senate rules and because of cloture uh, and the filibuster who can absolutely when they're in the majority, largely control that body. And I think there are a few sort of sleeping giants already there, people like Tom Cotton, uh, Josh Howell, who are, who are ready, Josh Hawley, excuse me, who are ready to, to step up and get more courageous once they, they have the numbers. And I think the numbers are on the way. I mentioned J.D. Vance and Blake Masters. I think there are others like Adam Laxalt in Nevada, Katie Britt from right here in Alabama. I think we are going to send— and, and by the way, all those people I've named are young, which is also yeah, really yeah. exciting. I mean, they're 30s and 40s at most, uh, we're going to send this crop there. And I believe we're going to have maybe a dozen senators uh, who, in terms of character and, and belief and, you know, character and policy are going to truly advocate for the people, not join the Uniparty. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm confident we're going to have real change. Now, here's how I think we'll tell quickly, because they'll be seated in January. If I'm right, they'll be seated as a majority in January. First order of business, in my view, and I've talked to several of them, I'm involved with some of their campaigns, I've talked to them personally about this, first order of business has to be, 
if you don't get this border under control, Joe Biden, which is the first and foremost duty of, of any elected leader, whether it's a town council, right, a state or a nation is public order, right? We have complete disorder, first function of government. If you don't get control of this border, if you don't start enforcing the actual laws of the United States and, and stop this mass trespassing into our country, we're not going to fund any of your initiatives. And I think we need to have that showdown immediately. If we have that showdown, then we'll know that we're in business. I think that will be the, the early tell of whether or not Steve Cortez is right or whether or not the cynics are right that, oh, you know what, they're going to go along and get along and Mitch McConnell is going to dominate uh, the, the Senate majority, assuming that he's a majority leader. Um, I don't think so. So we'll see. I, I hope hope uh, reigns eternal. And I think in this case, it's justified. Hope. I think in 2020, um, it was odd. You know, I just had this vibe leading into uh, the uh uh, election, presidential election, November of 2020, that, you know, Biden wasn't campaigning. Mm. And Democrats were treating the American people with utter impunity, like they are now. Mm -hmm. And I felt at the time, the only way you would do that is if you're so utterly out of touch with the common man, or you know the fix is in. Mm -hmm. And it really doesn't matter what you're doing. And so I'm kind of coming back to this whole issue of mm -hmm. election integrity in, 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 a, in a way. But it feels like that again to me. Do you think that Democrat, I mean, for instance, Joe, Joe Biden, you know, just, just sent out a, you know, a tweet that if he is real, excuse me, if um, Democrats uh, retain control of the, of the House and the Senate, that he will make abortion the law of the land. I mean, that's right. their issue. Right. They have made that the central issue of this election. Is that a is that a winning platform, or is it that they are just that out of touch? Right. Uh, look, it's that they're that out of touch. But I think too, what you were getting at is perhaps you're suspicious that the fix is in again. Yes, right. That, because and that, that, that because would explain I how mean, all this money that we're we're sending off to. Uh, to Ukraine, billions that are going on. The um, we're we're seeing the the middle class, uh, the poor, being crushed right. uh, in this economy, and there's zero concern. Uh, gas prices are soaring, and you have uh, the energy secretary, you know, saying that hey, they're tumbling, prices are tumbling. You know, right. at five dollars a gallon, this kind of thing, and you just wonder: is it that they think the American people are just this stupid that they mm -hmm. doesn't matter what they say? that people will buy into it. Mm -hmm. They'll just accept whatever propaganda. We The sky is blue, but if we tell you it's orange, you'll believe it. You will you will believe it. Or, um, you know, I, is it that the, the Nancy Pelosi's, the AOC's, on and on, that they're, Joe Biden for sure, are just utterly out of touch right. with working class people. And yeah, and I do wonder about the election integrity stuff. Sure. Um, well, putting that major issue aside, yeah. it's not an issue to be put aside. No, we, aside we, we for, are not going to solve that. Yeah, here. for the sake of conversation, though, and, and analysis here, to put that aside for a moment at least, in terms of you know how out of touch are they? Listen, I, I actually liken Washington, D.C. and what I like to call permanent Washington. Permanent Washington right now increasingly acts like the capital in the Hunger Games. And I mean by that, it is a place that is both depraved and totally disconnected. Disconnected yeah. from what is going on out of the districts. Disconnected from the suffering. Very of the, brave it, new world. 
world. Yeah, yeah, in the districts that is caused directly by the Capitol um, in, in the Hunger Games, and in this case, our actual capital of Washington, D.C. And let me give you a specific example of that. So, uh, you know, you mentioned about how much working class people are suffering, and uh, you, you were kind enough to mention my chalk talks, which have become sort of one of my signature, uh, you know, uh, uh, markers. And they're very good. People oh, should watch them. Well, thank you. And that and that harkens back to my to my jock days, right? Because I used to love, I, I thought, hey, and a lot of people will, it will resonate with people, with anybody who's played sports. Technically, it's a whiteboard with uh, squeaky markers, but anyway. I, because I tried chalk, and it doesn't look good on the <laughs> No, camera. it doesn't. No, so doesn't. you're right. And it I get, a mess. I get that criticism constantly, uh, <laughs> but so be it. Um, but I just did a chalk talk on, you know, to talk about this, how disconnected. I just did a chalk talk on how much rents are exploding in the yeah. United States because of interest rates. So we all know mortgage rates are absolutely exploding. 30-year fixed mortgages above 7% for the first time in over 20 years because of Joe Biden's inflation. Not surprisingly, and very much related, of course, when mortgage rates are going up, rents are also going up. So for the first time in U.S. history, the average, the median apartment rent in the United States is over $2,000 per month. And right now in the United States, one out of six renters, this is according to Morning Consult poll, one out of six renters is delinquent in their rent. Mm. I mean, think about that. One out of six renters in the United States. And renters, statistically, tend to be demographics that are both younger and lower income than homeowners. So to that point, middle and, and, and modest income people are getting crushed by Biden's economy. Now, what is Biden doing about it to get to the depravity part of it? So that disconnected and, and depraved, what is he doing about it? He's having a forum on transgender issues at the White House. Yeah, isn't that I mean, crazy? Isn't that just a freak show? It, you know, you watch that with this—I've uh, forgotten the name—but this guy who parades as a, yeah. you know, as a woman, and he's talking to her, him, excuse me, him about what it means to be a woman. Yeah. But here's the thing: even even if you believe, even if you believe in that trans, you know, ideology, which I obviously don't. All right, but let's say for a second you did. If you're a rational leader, you would also realize this is not the priority at a time like this, at a time of crisis. Yeah. And it is a crisis. And you won't notice that it's a crisis if you only pay attention to corporate media. But of course, people know it in their actual lives. That's the, the, the reality, right? It's, it's interesting because, look, I'm in the business of messaging. And, uh, and, and so I understand spin, I think, better than most. Spin and narrative yeah. from corporate media. Corporate media is able to spin people on certain issues. For example, I think in the beginning of the Ukraine war, they were able to spin that war as if it were just a pure showdown of good versus evil, right? All good Ukraine against all evil Russia in the early days. I think yeah. they were able to successfully spin uh, that opinion to most of the American people because, let's face it, most most Americans just don't know that much about the Black Sea region and yeah. the history there. I've okay? never been there, yeah. But you can't spin people about their personal finances. You can't spin them about the fact that when they put that credit card in at the gas pump, they're cringing. Yeah. And they're, uh, they're cringing about how much it's going to be and wondering if the credit card's going to go through. Yeah. Okay, that's the reality. And speaking of credit cards, by the way, savings have crashed in the United States. The savings rate right now in the United States, I'm a big believer in data and evidence. I don't believe in just sloganeering, Larry. This is you know back to my Wall Street days. Prove it with numbers, prove it with data. The savings rate right now is in, in the United States is only 3.5%. It's the lowest it's been since the 08, 09 crisis. And for almost all of American history, if you look back, the savings rate in the United States has been above 5%, almost yeah. always. The only time it went below previously was the 08, 09 crisis. We're now uh, at those lows. And for much of American history, above 10%. Mm -hmm. We're now at 3.5%. In terms of dollar figures, the savings rate since Joe Biden, or the, the dollar savings for Americans since Joe Biden has taken office, it has declined by 87%. So if you had $10,000 in the bank, average American, let's say they had $10,000 in the bank when Joe Biden took office, he has $1,300 now. Yeah. I mean, think of that. Yeah. That is a massive hit 
real wages, real wages, meaning wages adjusted for inflation, which is what really matters. Because if you're getting a pay increase, and listen, pay increases are great, but if you're getting a pay increase that doesn't keep pace yeah. with the cost of things you're buying in your life, the necessities of your life, then your real wages are going down. Even yeah. if your actual paycheck's getting slightly bigger numerically, you're getting poorer every day. Real wages have gone down now under Joe Biden. This is economic facts, not Steve Cortez's opinion, not Donald Trump's opinion, have gone down 18 straight months. That has never happened in all of American history. And regarding those working class people, by the way, you know, why are they behind on such a basic bill like rent? I mean, rent is a must pay bill, right? Well, it's because, for example, what's going on with the, with the must have items of life. I call this the, the, uh, the have to basket. So I've sort of coined it as that, the Cortez have to basket and it's groceries, gasoline, and utilities. Okay. Not any discretionary items at all, not any luxuries, the absolute bare necessities of life, grocery, gasoline, and utilities. Those three items taken together in the most recent CPI report are up 21% year over year. I mean, Larry, that is not just a frightening number. Uh, that, that is the kind of number that can actually lead to civil strife. And I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that. If we continue at that kind of pace with working class people, we're actually asking for disorder, yeah. you know, not just economic pain. Do you, how much of this do you think, you know, you were talking uh, earlier about President since Reagan, a managed decline. Mm -hmm. How much of this do you think is deliberate? I mean, it, is it just the, the, the Biden White House, their economists are just morons and they don't understand how to crunch numbers or do they know very well what they're doing and right. this, is, this is all a managed decline? Right. It is meant to crush the middle class. I think, unfortunately, it's the latter. And, yeah. I, and I hate to be quite that cynical, but let, you know, let's take a specific example, Janet Yellen, who is the current Secretary of the Treasury, former head of the Fed. Okay, in terms of a, of a resume, all right, a CV, you can't come up with a better resume than Janet Yellen. She got her doctorate from Yale. She was on the faculty of Harvard. She was the chair of the Fed. She's now the Secretary of the Treasury. You know, on paper, nobody should be better, right, at, at managing the United States economy, at assessing the United States economy than Janet Yellen. Yet throughout 2021, as this inflation was building and really starting to explode, throughout 2021, she told us time and time again into a microphone that it's, quote, transitory. It became sort of the favorite phrase of Washington, D.C. Fed Chair Powell said it. She said it. The White House said it ad nauseum that the inflation was, quote, transitory. Also tried to blame it on Putin. Uh, well, we know it's anything but transitory. Yeah, it's and we know that it's not Putin. Now, to your point, though, or I guess to my point regarding your question, I don't believe that Janet Yellen is foolish enough yeah. to have believed that it was transitory then, and I don't think she believes it now. Yeah. But that is actually even worse. I would prefer the incompetence, right? Because if she's not incompetent, it means that she wants to inflict the pain. And then the question is, well, then why? Yeah, right? that was my next question. Yeah. So I have my I have my reasons why I think they want to do it. But what do you think? What do you think the reason is there? I think, unfortunately, uh, the globalists believe that, number one, uh, you want a, a, a public that is largely dependent on the state. Um, and that a public that is dependent on the state will put up with the various attacks on the liberties and constitutional rights of the people, right? I think that's the first thing they see. They want as much dependency as possible on the state. And I think the second part of it, and this is where I really get cynical, is I believe they want to continue to break down the American family. Mm -hmm. uh, we already have a crisis in the American family, unfortunately, and it's decades long. It's not just under Joe mm -hmm. Biden, but we have a crisis in the American family. And there are a lot of reasons. Some of them are cultural. Some of them are the decline of Christianity in the United States. But there are also policy reasons. There are significant policy reasons. You know, for example, I talk and write a lot about getting back to a place where a single income can, a middle-class single income can, again, comfortably support a family, something that was a reality when you and I were mm -hmm. young. 
uh, that went away, I think largely because of globalist economic policies. Yeah. Uh, but I believe that these, these policy decisions that are so destructive to our country are meant particularly to harm families. And part of my, you know, and again, there might be some folks out there saying, oh, Cortez, you're sounding a little tinfoil hattish with that. Let me give you some more evidence. The way that we have used the virus as a pretext to attack children who are statistically invulnerable to the virus, right? So the idea that the CDC just decided that this brand new treatment, which isn't even really a vaccine, but this brand new vaccine is going to be put, is put on the regular schedule of inoculations for children, meaning that in many jurisdictions, particularly the places where there are blue governors and blue mayors, uh, it is going to be required as a precondition to go to school. Why would the government do that? It makes no scientific sense. It makes no logical sense. It's cruel. I mean, it's just abjectly cruel. Why would you do it? Well, you do it to subvert parental power, right? You do it to break, to further and, and erode the, the transgenderism, family. The, yeah. the, uh, the, the gender uh, transition, sex change surgery for minors. Again, it's breaking parental. I think you're 100% correct there. And I, look, I hate to be that cynical, but I think that's the reality. No, I think I think now, it is the reality. But here's the thing, too, though, Larry. It, listen, that, that's about as disconcerting as it gets, right? I mean, yeah. it, it doesn't get more depressing than that, right? Than than using government policy to use children as pawns to achieve a globalist, secular, humanist aim. Okay, it's horrible. Okay, it's terrible. Here's the good news. The good news is we there's have, an election coming up. There's an election coming up, and we have not yet devolved fully into into oligarchy. Yeah, we still have human agency. We still have a chance to change this. We saw it with Donald Trump, and we were making gains, not enough, but we were making gains. All of that was massively interrupted by the CCP virus, uh, and then the election of 2020, which I firmly believe was stolen, um, largely using the virus as a cover, as a beard, uh, to to enact the steal. But again, the the, the good news is. We are days away from a major fulcrum point. And listen, in every election, politicians, political operatives, frankly, people like me say most election, most important election in history, it's almost always a massive exaggeration. I truly don't believe it is this time. I think it's probably the most important and consequential uh, election in the United States, certainly midterm election, since perhaps the middle of the Civil War, the 1862 election, which was incredibly, also a fulcrum election in very many ways. I think we're at that kind of point right now in the United States. Uh, but I also believe, as as high as the stakes are, I believe the patriots of the country are rising to the occasion. I believe the candidates are there. And I think our opposition has failed so miserably that the table is set uh, for us to romp. Steve, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Larry, Thank you, buddy, for coming on. As I said, I, I am such an avid listener. I've learned so much from your show, from you and from Amy Beth, that it's just an honor to be part of it. Listen, uh, we're very grateful for that, humbled by that, and uh, glad to have you, uh, not just as a listener, but uh, honored to have you right here in the chair with me. Hope to do it again. Please. Uh, let's do it again. This has been great. Um, you are just, uh, you are, you are just a, a repository of, of election information. And this is stuff that I really feel like it's just, it, it's, I'm out of my depth on this. And you are, you are our expert. Thank you so much, buddy. Thank you, Larry. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, tune in to the Larry Alex Taunton show. We will see you next week. Turn out the lights. The party's over. They say that all. Ladies and gentlemen, we are grateful for the standing ovation, but there will be no encore for today's performance. Please exit the building in an orderly fashion. Thank you. Honey, can we leave now? <laughs>